Please turn in your Bibles to our Old Testament reading for this morning, which will also be our sermon text, Genesis 11. Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower with which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there, confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now if you would turn to... Our New Testament reading, Revelation chapter 7. Revelation 7, verses 9 through 12. The Apostle John records for us. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne And before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for your precious word. We pray, Lord, that your spirit might work deeply within us to illumine your word to our hearts, to, uh, to exposit it to us. Lord, we pray that your spirit might work even through me, a weak uh, vessel, and that you would be glorified and that you would be magnified that we would uh, come away from this time encouraged by your word, delighted in who you are, and ever so thankful for the work that your son has done on our behalf. Lord, we love you and ask that you would bless this time. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Ma, ma, everything was ma. As most of you know, my wife and I adopted our two daughters from the foster system in Los Angeles County. Both of them, as you can see, have beautiful cinnamon complexions that are quite different from my pale Scandinavian hide. They both came from a family that exclusively spoke Spanish in the house where they spent their time prior to coming to us. As a result, Abby came to us at 21 months old, not able to understand a single thing that Krista and I would say to her. It may surprise you, but we don't speak Spanish on a daily basis. There was quite the language barrier, which I think frustrated Abby far more than either of us. 
I can just picture in her mind thinking, I was just starting to figure out this whole speaking thing. Now leche is milk and agua is water. What gives? In those early days, she just started calling everything ma and pointed. My patient wife so impressed me in those days as she continually came aside, came alongside this little girl to help her to learn to communicate with her through sign language and eventually through leading to speak English itself. Eventually, that smart little cookie learned our language and probably speaks it even better than I do. But it was quite a tough time. Nothing can separate people quite like language can. And this makes sense from a biblical perspective because God created man in his own image and God is a communicating God. He is a speaking God and so we are speaking creatures. He is a relational God and so we are relational creatures. When language divides, all that communication, all that relationship is severely strained. As we will see, this is why there are so many nations, tribes, and people groups, because people gravitate towards those who talk like they talk. But by God's grace also this morning, we will see even this is for his own glory and even for our good. This morning, I want us to be struck by Genesis 11, by by God's greatest glory in a multitude of tribes, tongues, and nations. We're going to look at a passage that describes both the depths of the depravity of sin, the judgment of God, and yet the utter graciousness of our God as well. In a striking surprise, even in judgment, God dispenses grace upon grace to these rebellious sinners. We're going to move through our text this morning in in four stages. We're going to see four scenes in this drama of judgment. Four stages, four movements of this narrative text. And and the first scene or the first major movement that we're going to see is the setting of the text. The setting of the text. As we approach it this morning, it's good to remind ourselves of what Moses wrote prior in Genesis. After all, context, context, context is the king to interpretation. In chapters 6 through 9, we have a rather prolonged account of a global cataclysmic flood. And this flood destroyed all life on the dry ground, save for what was in the ark that Noah made and brought along. Only eight people survived that judgment. Noah, his three sons, and their wives. Once the ark lands on the mountains, God swears to Noah. He enters into covenant with Noah and all the earth that he would never again destroy the world through destructive waters. God does so much in that covenant that time would fail us to go through even a few of them. But just in summary fashion, God makes a promise to preserve the ground we walk on. God also made a promise to maintain the times and seasons, seed time and harvest. We would have these on a regular basis. And God also promised to preserve the line of Noah, which is the seed of the woman, which he promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15 would crush the seed of the serpent. But the most pertinent part of this covenant to our text this morning in Genesis 11 is that God commanded that the descendants of Noah disperse through the whole world under the promise that God would not utterly wipe them from the face of the world. They were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And in chapter 10, we we see a description of this exact thing happening. 
In chapter 10 of Genesis, it tells us of the effect of this spread, that there were many cultures and many nations that formed as men and women spread throughout the earth, being fruitful and multiplying. For once, it seems like a very nice obedience to God's command, does it not? But then we come to Genesis 11, verse 1, which reads, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. You see, as so often happens in the book of Genesis, Moses writes for us an account in summary fashion, this is chapter 10, that this is all what happened, but then he returns back to the beginning to give us more detail, and this is Genesis 11. We see the broad strokes of the obedience and the many languages and nations in chapter 10, but now in chapter 11 he's telling us how this all happened. It was not, as some or it, it, it was not an organic sort of obedience where God commanded and the people said, that's a great idea and I will do that. Rather, the sinfulness of man was on full display in that they blatantly disobeyed the word of God. The word of God says here that all the people of the earth had a common language and a common vocabulary. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. I find it interesting that Mo- Moses emphasizes that point. They had a common language and a common vocabulary. There's an exacting unity of speech that these people had. They had one language. They shared the same syntax. They had the same sentence structure. They had the same word order. They had the same grammar, the same verbal forms, the same noun declensions. There was a joke of a famous quip by Mark Twain about the German language. Because in German, all the verbs are put at the end of the sentence. So if you interrupted a German, they spent five minutes talking about something that you have no clue what they're actually doing. Very different from English, right? What is more, they also had the same vocabulary. An apple was an apple was an apple. And there wasn't another word for it at this time. Of course, it wasn't apple, but some other word. But it was the same word. You know how amazing this would be if you've ever taken or tried to learn a foreign language, especially Spanish, it seems. It seems every single country has a different vocabulary term. For example, and I apologize in advance for my pronunciation, if you wanted a jacket in Spain, you would ask for a chaqueta. In Argentina, it's a campera. In the Dominican Republic, it's a saco, which, by the way, in Spain means a large bag, so that would be confusing. In Mexico, it's a chamara. In Peru, it's a casca. Puerto Rico is a blazer for women and a gabon for men. Even in English, we have the same differences between the British and American English, right? A trunk is a boot, a hood is a bonnet, a cookie is a biscuit, French fries are chips, chips are crisps, and of course, aluminum is aluminium. These people had no such barriers to communication. Can you even contemplate that? The word for a brick was one word that all of them universally knew because the whole earth was one language and the same words. Verse 2 tells us, And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. Leaving behind the wreckage of the ark that Noah built, they descended from the mountain and traveled westward uh, into a plain that is in the modern-day Iraq. This place, called the Plains of Shinar, is the first mention of one of the top three most significant places in all of Scripture, on par with Jerusalem and Sinai. Have you ever contemplated the importance of geography within Scripture? We really have three major, major places, Jerusalem, Sinai, and the Plains of Shinar, which would become Babylon. 
They gathered together in this one place, and as time progressed, those eight people turned into 36, into 216, into 1,296, into 7,776 within a few generations. Rather than spreading into other regions of the earth, these all gathered together and refused to leave. Rather than filling the earth with fellow image bearers, they clustered together. Rather than being obedient to the gracious requirement of their God, they rejected his commandment and spurned his rule. And this brings us to the second part of our drama, the scheme. The scheme. And they said to one another, verse 3, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. You can picture the scene in your mind, can't you? They're, they're sitting in the middle of what would come to be known as the Fertile Crescent, looking at each other and all the rest of the people gathered together. They know that they should be going out into the world because the one who got that commission from God, Noah, was probably still alive at this time. Or at the very least, his sons were. They knew well the commission from God. They knew their task. And they knew even better that they were disobeying this commission. All of a sudden, someone had the idea, well, well, let's make some bricks to build stuff. Note that the image of God is alive and well with these men and women. They are using their designed creativity to subdue the earth, but just not in the right manner. Someone realizes that if you fire the bricks, they become rock hard and can be stacked one upon the other to form walls and structures. Then you can picture what another man said. Well, this brick is really a useful thing. Let's see how big of a building we can build. This morning I was contemplating for some reason why it is that every child loves to stack brick upon brick. And of course their favorite thing is when it all falls down. I have no idea why. Perhaps it's an instinct of Babylon. <laughs> uh, or it's just kids delighting in something. I have no clue, but it just popped into my mind this morning. Then another says, let's see if we can build a whole city out of these bricks. And then yet another, what if we build a tower to be a sign to everyone around that this is a mighty city? Then they all agreed that the tower would become the focal point. It would reach up into the heavens, they claimed. Look at their exact reasoning in verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city. Let us make a permanent dwelling place in a centralized location, a beacon by which we can remain where we are, and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make our dwelling place a rival to the dwelling place of God himself. We will build it so that God himself will know that we are men and women to be reckoned with. Now, in all probability, this was more of a ziggurat than a skyscraper, uh, a large pyramid-like structure with steps going up to the top. And what we know from all ancient ziggurats is that there was a temple on the top wherein sacrifices could be made. They continue, and let us make a name for ourselves. Let us bring glory to our name. Let us build it so that any wanderers or sojourners will know that we are better than they, that we are the mighty ones. With the express purpose, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Let us do all of this so that we might be established in our rebellion, and no one can make us live in the forests or the mountains or the coast. 
The tower was the strong foundation for their immoral and immovable sin. Brothers and sisters, is this not the goal and mission of the natural man? They know the requirement of God and and dismiss it. They have heard that they are a sinner, that they have fallen short of the glory of God. They have heard the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They have heard that you must love your neighbor as yourself, and yet they revel in their sin. They persist in loving themselves. They delight in coveting. They amass wealth selfishly, hoarding possessions. They cheat others in order to progress. They sin, though they know they ought not to. They wag their fists to the heavens and say in their hearts, Ha! I will make a name for myself. What a dangerous place to be. What peril they willingly and delightedly walk through. In their hatred for God, they delight in the things that he hates. Are there any such in this room? Perhaps you are one like unto these sinners in the plains of Shinar. You have built for yourself a kingdom that glorifies your own self. You have selfishly coveted and desired and pursued the things that are opposed to the very nature of God. You don't love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, you hate your neighbor because he takes from you or in some way you are deficient because of him. Take care, my friend, for God will not be mocked. So we've set the scene. We hear the scheme. And now... Next in our text this morning, we will see the scorn. We've seen the setting, we've seen the scheme, and now the scorn. Verse 5 tells us, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. Do you hear the sarcasm in this verse? Where the rebellious sinners claimed to build a tower so high that it would reach up into the heavens. Here God had to come down in order to see it. Where they believed that their heart, in their hearts that they had built a tower of mon- mountainous proportions, God needed a magnifying glass to observe it. Now we know that God knows all things and sees all things. This is merely a classic example of the irony and sarcasm in the pages of Scripture. In a sense, we are meant to chuckle here at the foolishness of man and marvel at the greatness of God. The grandest things in our lives are but specks of dust on this earth to God. They matter not to him in his very nature. They cannot affect him in any way. They cannot coerce him. In fact, he is distinct from and separate from all of his creation. He is transcendent, is he not? The grandest things in our lives are but nothing to him. In short, God was not impressed. And verse 6 tells us, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. God observes that they are unified. They are gathered together for one purpose right now. They may only be literally trying to make a mountain out of a molehill, but from here, what would be next? Here is a biblical observation that every rural citizen would gladly herald. When many sinners are gathered into a small geographical space, bad things always seem to happen. Just look at the major cities of our land. Crime is rampant. Demonic ideology is perfected and rebellion against God is encouraged. Now, of course, living in a city is not itself evil, but it certainly can be dangerous. Just ask Lot how his time in Sodom went. God continues saying, 
And nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. They will be able to convince each other to do or to say anything. They will use groupthink to come up with ways to sin. They, they will build the tower and then sacrifice people on top of it. They will sell each other into slavery to build more monumental projects. They will murder each other. They will instruct each other on how to sin against God in the worst ways imaginable. And all of mankind will be of one evil accord. God's verdict, this may not happen. If God is to be true to the words that he spoke to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the serpent will not dominate the world, lest there should be no seed of the woman to crush his head. No, our God will not go back on his word. Our God will not be thwarted by the evil intentions of man's hearts. So we see in our fourth and final scene the solution. The solution, namely the judgment of God. Moses writes, Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. The Lord determines that the answer to this rebellion is that their unity would be fractured. Note the irony. The unified triune God would break the unity of sinful mankind. The unified host of heaven would gather to scatter the coalition of man. He would scramble their languages. This was his judgment against their sin. Now, for those of you who are interested in such things, modern secular linguists believe that each one of the 6,500 some odd languages spoken in the world today can trace all their origins to about 20 mother tongues, 20 ancient languages that all the rest have blossomed out of. The 20 mother tongues such as Indo-European, Afro-Asiatic, and Austronesian languages. I don't know what those exactly mean or represent, but they represent geographical language, uh, areas of the globe. Every language spoken came from about 20 mother tongues. And this is secular linguists, mind you. If there are only 20 mother tongues, then doesn't this disprove the Bible's account here of the origin of all languages? Well, not at all. Indeed, let us look at the kindness and work of God's grace here. Using some sanctified imagination and some reasonable inferences, from the context, it would seem that we're only a couple generations removed from the flood. There may be around 8,000 human beings living on the earth, all of them descended from those original eight on the ark. And if God formed 20 language groups out of this group, then they would be scattered into groupings of about 200 to 400 people. This would be large enough to easily survive and not be engulfed by the wilderness, yet it would not be large enough that they could gather together and rebel against God's uh, decree. We see the goodness of God here in that he's actually enforcing obedience, as it were. As these people moved out of the Fertile Crescent and settled in different locations, their languages would transform and morph and separate we can see this in the formation of Spanish, French, Portuguese, and Romanian, all of which find their mother tongue in Latin. And this was only 2,000 years ago. It's amazing when the Bible proves the secular scholars' claims, is it not? I want us to contemplate the result of this sin and judgment. The goodness that God worked for his people and the glory that he gets from it. And in the balance of our time this morning, I would like to look at five good results that God brought forth from this confusion, from this judgment. Five good results. The first is obedience. Obedience to God. Isn't this amazing? The grace of God. He, he brings obedience through his judgment. 
Verse 8 tells us, So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. God's work is effective. Notice his grace. When, when they gathered rather than scattering, he could have done a number of things to them, could he have not, to end this rebellion? He could have made the earth to quake and split in the midst of the city. He could have sent a plague that would have decimated the population, forcing them out. He could have just killed the leaders of the rebellion in horrific ways as a warning to the others. In short, he could have used fear to coerce obedience, and he would have been perfectly justified in doing so. Also note, these are exactly what he did in the wilderness wanderings. But this is not how our God chose to work here. He did something rather innocuous to force them to be obedient to his commission to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Rather than beat them into submission, he judged them graciously and effectively. Rather than destroy him, he helped them with a very real motivation to obey. They obeyed God and spread through the earth. There are some of you in this room this morning who are under this gentle hand of God's rebuke. It's something that we as Christians know very well. God judges us for our sins in in a disciplining sort of way to help us to become more obedient and more like his son. It it, it is a judgment and yet is a gentle judgment in a a discipline that helps us, that that guides us, that, that works righteousness in us. After all, the kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance, does it not? So the first thing that we see as a result of this judgment is obedience. Next, we see protection. We see protection from centralized government. They stopped building the city, but only for a time, because we next learn in verse 9, Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. Babel would eventually be renamed Babylon. And it continued to be a place of rebellion against God. Remember, after all, that Babylon became a great empire and would be an instrument that God would use to judge the nations of Israel and send them into exile. Isn't that interesting? God judged the people in Babel and then later would use Babylon to judge his people. Daniel and Ezekiel lived in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was king over Babylon. Many Jews would learn paganism while in Babylon. There's always been a push to rebuild this one-world government, as it were. God protected our ancestors from this monolithic, all-powerful human government, and it seems as though, with the fracturing of globalism in our day, that he's continuing to do this gracious work. Rest assured, brothers and sisters, there will one day be a one-world government, but it will be led by our gracious and merciful King, our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The third good that God brought from this judgment was the destruction of man's pride. The destruction of man's pride. Where they attempted to make a name for themselves and and bring themselves glory, God shattered their dream. And God has done this time and time again. Where is the Egyptian empire? Where are the mighty Greek empire? Where is the Roman, the British empires? Each of these mighty empires was great, and then in their pride, God humbled them and destroyed the empire. Babylon is a unique place, though. It stands as a placeholder and emblem for all that is sinful in the human heart. 
From Genesis 11 onward, Babel or Babylon has been a place of high-handed rebellion against the creator of the universe. God staved off that ultimate rebellion for these many millennia so that the seed of the woman might crush the serpent. And one day he will vanquish the last remnants of that serpent's seed from the face of the earth, even Babel. Listen to John's words regarding this wicked city in Revelation 18. This is verses 2, 5, 7, and 10. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, for her sins are heaped as high as heaven. Isn't that interesting? There is something as high as heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. As she gloried herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. God did destroy the pride of man. He does destroy it, and he will utterly destroy it. Now, there are two more categories of good that God worked out of this city's judgment, and oh, how delightful and delectable they are, brothers and sisters. They especially show us the glory of Christ. And, and, and the, the, the fourth good that comes out of this is the possession of each group. Think for a moment about the parting words of Christ in the Gospel of Matthew. Where Christ in Matthew 28 verses 18 through 20 says the, this. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus has authority over each one of the groups or nations of people that departed from the plains that day. He has claimed people from each group for his own. He has marked off some from each of their descendants as belonging to him and to him alone. It is because of this possession of each of these groups that he can commission his disciples with a new task of going as his ambassadors to each and every one of them with his precious, beautiful, delightful gospel of peace. Specifically, that God saves rebels. Though we were all lost in our sins, Christ, at the right time, died for the ungodly. That we who are wicked and mired in our sin, that Christ would look upon us with pity and with mercy. And that he would stand in our place, that he would die in our place as our substitute. To bear the wrath of God that we justly deserved upon his shoulders so that we might be declared innocent. So that we might not only be not guilty, but also be given his very righteousness. We have this gospel here of peace with God. And Christ commissioned his apostles to go out into the world. To multiply and fill the world, as it were, with his gospel of peace. It's because of his possession of every group that he can do this. Now, there would be some glory if all men stayed in one city and the gospel was preached to every man in that city. 
Yet there's so much more glory, is there not, when messengers carry this good news into all the world, sacrificing the comforts of home, the safety of family, the benefits of civilization, to go out and preach the gospel of Christ. To go out and preach to those whom Jesus has declared, they are mine. Indeed, how blessed are the feet that bring good news. So in this way, there is more glory for God and more good for us because God scattered these people into all the world. Finally, we come to the fifth good worked out at Babel, and that is the magnification of the sun. The magnification of the sun. Turn with me in your Bibles to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. We're going to go back to chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. In the middle of all the wondrous things that the Apostle John saw, we come to chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, where we read these precious words. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Observe the manifold splendor of this heavenly choir. It was a great multitude that could not be numbered. The Apostle John, if he sat down for hundreds of years, could not number this great multitude. This multitude composed, was composed of people from every nation. Isn't it amazing that the Apostle John notes that they were from every nation? From Afghanistan to Zambia, from Rome to, to Gaul. All nations, both modern and ancient, are represented in this heavenly choir. Moreover, all tribes, that which nations are composed of, from the Cherokee to the Inuits, from the Romans to the Zulu, from the greatest tribes to even the smallest of but a dozen people in the middle of the rainforest, each member or each tribe was represented in this heavenly multitude. The apostle continues, all peoples from each and every race, from every color of skin under the sun, each was represented in this heavenly choir. And of course, most pertinent to our text this morning, the apostle John notes that all languages also were singing the praises and glory of our great Savior. Riddle me this, how did John know that every language would be spoken in heaven? It is only because he heard every language being spoken in heaven and praising and worshiping our great Savior. There will be people standing before the throne singing in English, praying in Greek, worshiping in Mandarin, blessing in Portuguese, and yes, reading Greek and Hebrew. This manifold worship could never have happened had there been no Babel. This beautiful harmony of worship is made all the more magnificent precisely because of its diversity. John Piper makes this point in his fantastic little book, Spectacular Sins. He notes that God's glory can never be fully expressed by human language, right? We can never comprehend, let alone describe, who our God is in his entirety, in his fullness. But I would offer to you, if we had two ways of describing this magnificent, glorious God, we are twice as, twice, or two times more encompassing of what we can just scratch the surface of. 
With two languages, we can describe in twice as many ways. And with three languages, he can be described in three times as many ways. How much more through the worship of 31,000 different known languages? We see in heaven this beautiful picture of every language describing the holiness of God in their own mother tongue. And in some miraculous way, we'll be able to understand these languages, I think. This is why the Apostle John could say that every language was uh, represented because he could understand what they were saying, what they were singing, what they were speaking to one another. We see that heaven would actually be in some way deficient without Babel. Because there would only be one human means of describing the glories of God. And yet because of God's judgment at Babel, he now has multiplied in a massive way the ways in which he may be honored and described. It is only our God who can take open rebellion and turn it into something that brings glory and delight to himself. Herein lies a great mystery. Through the rebelliousness of mankind at Babel, the very nature and atmosphere of heaven has been altered for all of eternity, all to the praise and glory of our great God. And he has called us to be a part of it. Let us pray.